Ian's actually setting up the uh, computer uh, for our guest speaker. Uh, I, I won't be speaking, but we have some amazing uh, guests, and I'm so blessed. The last service was rocking. It was amazing. Uh, now, Michelle and I were gone. We uh, left Camarillo day before yesterday. I don't remember when it was, and then ended up in Phoenix, and then flew to Carlsbad, and then came back to Camarillo, and then we're going to Lancaster, and then uh, Glendora, something. And then, hi, everybody. And uh, <laughs> But this is kind of interesting. Uh, a, a year ago, uh, my... My, my son, my youngest, uh, he's a child of my old age. Um, he's 19, and, and he, he came to me and said, you know, Dad, how old do you have to be to get married? And I said, son, if, if I had met your mom at 19, I would have married her, you know. And I, and I, I don't know if you know this, but uh, there's a family, you guys heard him speak here, Joseph Bondarenko. Um, he's a pastor. He spent 23 hours a day in solitary confinement with the KGB. And he came and spoke here, and his family was here. And um, he's got a granddaughter, and I'm like, son... Go get, because my wife doesn't like this, but it's true. You don't get racehorses out of mules. You got to mate them up, and uh, and doggone it, uh, you know, man chases a woman until she catches him, and um, there we go. Uh, we were gone because my son proposed to uh, Elizabeth. Do we have a photo? There we go. So they're getting married. It's awesome. I'm just really excited about that. So uh, that was the announcement. The other one, uh, that was a family announcement. But then I wanted to share with you that though I'm here today, I'm really excited that I'm not speaking because I have have come to be who I am first and foremost because uh, a friend of mine, David Lane, had included me in um, these things called the American Renewal Project. But it was when I went to the first one in Florida... And I was a history major at, uh, you know, the Harvard of the San Joaquin Valley, Fresno State. And, I, <laughs> and I, I thought, you know, I'm a pretty smart guy. No, I'm, I was, actually, I should have majored in eligibility. I was an athlete. I was dumber than a box of rocks. And, and I, I sat into this service, and the man spoke, and I was mesmerized by him. And that was 2006. And it's been a number of years. And I have, to the best of my ability, read everything he's written and watched everything that has been recorded. And I, I, I still, he, he just continues to churn out all of this amazing historical information and makes it applicable. And he's the first one that I saw how he just seamlessly intertwined biblical truths with American history to understand that, that, that liberty is God's idea. And, and he's the one who fashioned me, God used to fashion me. And he's speaking today, and that's David Barton. So I just, stand up, David. I know you're sitting there. Amen. Yeah, and he's sitting on the ground. I don't, I don't know what's happening there. I'm trying. And then also, uh, his wife Cheryl's here, and she's super sweet. And I don't know if she hid or ran away, but um, I love Cheryl. And then they came with uh, Chad and Dana Connolly. And Chad and Dana have been the dearest of friends to us for years. And I don't, oh, you got, oh, good. Uh, come here, Chad. Come here real quick. Hurry. These are fakemass.com, and I... I I got you and your wife, two of them, for travel. Yeah, 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 yeah. You can breathe. They do a lot of traveling. Um, okay, and so uh, they'll be speaking, but there's one speaker before uh, David Barton, uh, and then there's one speaker before that speaker. And I begin by sharing with all of you that uh, this, is, this is ground zero, 
and, and I'm, I'm always humbled and amazed that I have the privilege to be the pastor of a congregation with people so sp splendid and brave. Now, I know some of you have taken the shot and, and you're struggling over it. And I get it. I, I'm not, nobody's here to dump on you or judge you or you know less than anyone else. And, and I know that everyone rises and falls before one master and you're, you're trying to weigh it. But in this congregation, as a result of the fearlessness of who we once considered heroes in our community, our nurses, our doctors, our, our police, our fire, our front line, our paramedics, our military personnel, here they were in this pandemic ministering in the emergency rooms and we called them heroes. And now we're firing them because they refuse to take an experimental injection that is already recorded by the VARES. This is government and they say it's 90% underrated, but let's just go with what they report. 16,000 deaths, over 3,000 hospitalizations based on this injection and 6,000 incidences. And now they're forcing it on our children for a virus that has a 99.7% survival rate with those with no comorbidities. And, and children, I mean, more children drowned in bathtubs and died of this virus. And, and in addition, the children that have died, 400 around the world, that is a result of severe comorbidities, which is lymphoma, leukemia. And now we have a governor that is mandating that. Whether you're pro-vax or anti-vax is irrelevant. We're all pro-liberty. Now, I say this because we are at a place where right now, and this, this was a study that was done by Stanley Milgram in the 60s in Yale University, that they get people to obey uh, authority for the stupidest of things, and they start to browbeat one another, and it's incremental. And they got people to administer 450-volt shocks to people when they were saying, I have a heart issue, and they did it because a man in a lab coat holding a clipboard said, you must. You can, you can read the study. They, they did the study because they wondered how a nation like Germany that had good people was overrun by 9% of the population that then took that entire nation and used that nation to, to wipe out 6.5 million Jews and be responsible for the death of 50 million people. How do you get to a place like that? It's incrementally. Little submissions. They start to teach you. And so what happens is People make a stand, and you can either stand with them or you can be silent. And by the way, your silence, you know, when the, when the minister says, if anyone has an issue with these, this couple getting married, speak now forever, hold your peace. Your silence is consent. So when one of us stands and says, I, I don't want that shot, and you're going to lose your job. It went, it went real quick, quick from a Krispy Kreme donut to lose your job. And now our military personnel are losing their jobs. Dr. Rake, he just, he just got fired from UCLA. Our congregant, he's a doctor, anesthesiologist. He's fired because he wouldn't take an experimental injection as a doctor with a conscience saying, used and created by aborted fetal tissue. And they still, and this is medical apartheid, and they're going to play us until we all submit. And we have firefighters in here. I, I know some of the Beverly Hills firefighters and, and they, they have stood and they're contending and, and folks, you showed up that day. You went and supported them. They're here. God bless you guys.
Well, this is one that, that hits me pretty tough. This is my dearest friend. I love this man. My kids call him Uncle Dave. He, uh, he, he's been an American Airlines pilot. He's been flying since he was young. 35 years, American Airlines. He's now achieved the rank of a wide-body captain, not because of his body, but I'm talking about... <laughs> that's, that's, that's a joke. No, that, the largest airplane American Airlines has. You have to be really good. And he was a chief pilot for American Airlines. Sought after. Amazing pilot. And, and usually get that position coveted, like less than 2% of pilots get it. He got it. And not just for the last five years of his career, for the last 10 years. And now they said, if you don't get this shot by November, you're fired. And you know what? He's not going to take the shot. Wait, 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 wait. You're clapping. He's going to try to figure out, like Dr. Reiki is, how we're going to feed our family. And the way we support him is we do the same thing. And some of you taking the shot and you, you walk by and you can't look him in the eye. And I get it. I know you're, you're, everyone's struggling through this. And, and, and I think everyone, we make mistakes. I get it. But forget about the mistakes. Let's do the right thing from this point forward. Let's defend liberty and fight for it. I want you to see David Glinky. Come on out, buddy. This is my friend, American Airlines pilot. <laughs> Thank you so much. I have been so amazingly blessed to be part of this congregation and do 200 live streams with Rob when we first started out. I got to be part of the family event being adopted. It was a great two days. And um, I just happened to be the next person in, in the shoot to go down the, so I don't want to take away from anybody else. I want to be so thankful for the examples that came before me. Number one, Rob, and then to Matt and Barb and Jordan and Dr. Chris Rake that just uh, lost his job this last Thursday. What amazing warrior. So please pray for the people that came before us for their provision. Pay, pray for the people that right now are going through it protected, and the next set of people that have the courage. Please pray for them. We have just a short two and a half minute video. They kind of... Yeah, the, the video is how you support them. And then secondly, Lindsey Graham. This is a... She, she owned a salon in Oregon, stood in, uh, in defiance to tyranny. They took away her business. She's a mom. Would you stand up, Lindsay Leverage? She's got a book. Content. She's out there. Get to meet her. Support her. No more. And we're going to set the standard. This is, this is the epicenter of an awakening in America. God wants to use you. Do not be afraid. Watch the video. This is how we support these brave folks. Bless you now. I've been an airline pilot for 18 years, and now I'm facing an ultimatum. Not a choice, but an ultimatum. I'm being told in order to continue my career as an airline pilot, I must be vaccinated, which really means I have to choose between putting food on the table for my family and my freedom of choice. Whether you believe in vaccination is the right thing to do or not, the situation goes far beyond health. We, the American people, have fought for freedom for 257 years. We go around the world spreading ideas of freedom and democracy. We help other countries and people fight for their freedoms while ours are being stripped away. You may think being forced to wear a mask or get a vaccination is insignificant. But when you begin to compile mandate after mandate and loss of freedom after freedom, it becomes very significant. 
As each thing is taken away, we face what is known as the shifting baseline syndrome. This syndrome changes our idea of a new and acceptable normal. Soon, we will not remember what it was like to have the freedoms we once did. Our children and our grandchildren will experience less freedom and they won't have the privilege or the pleasure to enjoy the same choices our parents had or that we have. If we give into these mandates and we do not stand up for our freedom of choice, we dishonor every armed service person over the last 257 years. A disservice to the people who have fought and bled for the very freedoms we enjoy. Whether you believe in vaccination or not, I'm standing up for your freedom of choice. You may support the vaccine mandates because they fall in line with your current beliefs. But if we let this happen now, there will be a day when what you're told to do will not fall in line with your beliefs. If we do not stand together and fight back in one voice, soon we could be told where to live, what job we will do, what religion to believe, and how many children we can have. Do you really want someone telling your children or your grandchildren what, when, and how they will live every minute of their lives? It's time we take a stance. It's time we fight for our freedom of choice while we still can. Join us. Visit usfreedomflyers.org. Help support our mission to protect and preserve our freedoms. Uh, the next person is going to speak. I, I had the privilege to meet them over the phone, and I was introduced to them by my, my daughter, Kelly, who sings up here. She said, Dad, this young man's amazing. Uh, he, was, he had received an appointment to one of the service academies. He was on his way to school, got in a horrible accident, became a, a, a quadriplegic, or a paraplegic, excuse me. And, um, and, and his story's amazing. And I wanted him to come and speak at the church. So we were trying to work that through, and a couple things happened, and we just kind of lost contact. I ran into him just as COVID was hitting. It was the last uh, Turning Point event. By the way, Turning Point here is with Jacob, and they've got a table out there. Go and say hi to him. But I met him at this Turning Point event in Virginia, and I said, Madison, man, good to see you. And he goes, I want to I run for Congress. I'm running for Congress. Excuse me. And I said, that's cool. <laughs> Dude, you look like Doogie Hauser. He's a young guy. And, uh, and, and I go, you know, I asked him questions, and he was solid, and he had a great campaign team. Next thing I know, this guy wins. He was the, he's the youngest elected Congress member in, in the modern history of the United States of America. A lot of folks dump on him because they say he's super pro-Second Amendment. Well, you know what? Uh, yeah. Amen. But we're in California, and some people go, oh, that's, that's awful. Yeah. By the way, the only way you protect the First Amendment is with the Second Amendment. I'm just saying. And, and you know what? Guns are dangerous in the hands of a tyrannical government. He is a uniquely gifted and, and fearless man. Uh, and he has stood in opposition, and his voice is one that is, uh, there's just few of them in, in the house, but his is fervent and strong and profound, and I love this man. Please welcome Congressman Madison Cawthorn. Come on, buddy. Wow. Well, I will tell you, I did not know, I did not know that there was a place of so much freedom in California. And that is this place right here. You know, when, 
I, I have had the pleasure of getting to go uh, to a lot of states across the country, to a lot of states across the country, and get to speak to young people trying to save my generation from the lies of socialism, the deceits they've been taught, uh, the, the incorrect history that's been forced upon them. And as I go around, you know, I will tell you, I have found that there are people who just desire to be governed, which makes absolutely no sense to me. But then this patriotic fervor that you feel in this room, this love and desire that you have for the tenets that we hear, you know, in, in this word from God that predate any version of government, that God gave us free will, that God gave us liberty, this is felt all around the country. And when I, I go back to the southeast and I start telling people that I saw this in California, man, that makes them excited. <laughs> because we all just assume it's homeless people. And so, <laughs> but I, I will tell you, you know, it, it, it's, when I consider what's going on in our, in our world right now, you know, I, as I was growing up, I always had a desire to make a difference and to, to, to defend liberty, defend my family, all these things. And as I started looking around, I was like, wow, you know, this has really been the most peaceful and luxurious and prosperous de seven decades the world has ever known. I said, well, God, why in the world would you put me at this time? I, I, I wanted to be able to, to, to sacrifice for you, but, you know, I, there's nothing, this is comfortable. Gosh, I wish I didn't pray that. <laughs> I am really tired of living through historical events. I, I really am. But, you know, as we start seeing the tyranny that's going on, whether it's from corporations that have become just larger than governments themselves, whether it's the fact that we're losing our First Amendment rights, whether it's the fact that liquor stores and marijuana dispensaries are open, but our churches were closed. And we realize now that our government is not working in our best interest. We realize now that they should not be called public schools because they don't work in the public interest of the American people. They're government schools. And when we realize all of these incredible threats that we are facing as a people together, we realize that, wow, God must have an incredible amount of trust in our abilities, in our courage, and in our faith to have us born for such a time as this. Because when I look out at this crowd, I will tell you that I am honored to be among you because I know God had us born in this time because he must have known that we were going to stand. And so my, my call... We, we're going to hear from somebody, David Barton, right after I, I, I leave the stage. And he is going to give you an incredible take on the amazing heritage that we are all the recipients of as American citizens. And I will tell you, it will fill you with passion to stand up for your country. It will fill you with passion to stand up for God. It will realize that this country was founded on Christian Judeo values. And it's time that we start fighting for them. So everyone, thank you for letting me be here. It's an honor. Congressman Gawthorne is going to be the speaker at the third service. Uh, so, you know, you want to get a double dose. You know what? A, a man who gets around with two wheels stands better than 99% of Americans. I love that man. Just so blessed. And I, I love this next man. Um, I just, I can't, I can't say enough about him. And uh, he and his wife, Cheryl, are precious to me and Michelle. 
Uh, David Barton has been doing this for years. He's been tireless. He's been a voice crying in the wilderness, and he's never given up. And now America's awakening, and, and he has already laid out the roadmap. I'm so blessed by this man. I want to quit talking because you got to hear from him. Let's welcome David Barton. Thanks, brother. Thanks, guys. Thank you, guys. Thanks. Appreciate it. Let me start off with a single word, and the word is history. I'm going to use that word, uh, and it helps if I turn my clicker on. The word history is a word the Bible emphasizes very heavily. We're told, recall the former days, which is history. We're told, recall the former times, history. We're told to teach our children the things that happened in previous generations, history. You find that history is what alters the course of the nations. Uh, as Josiah, for example, was rebuilding the temple, trying to get God back to the center of life in Israel. In the midst of that, they found an old scroll that was in the, the temple, and they brought it out and read it and said, we used to be like this, and it led to a national revival. They were already doing good things that led to a national revival. You will find that what saved Mordecai's life was that earlier on, he had saved the king's life. If you remember the story of Esther and Mordecai, he saved the king's life. There were a couple of chamberlains that tried to kill the king, and he outed them and saved the king's life. And they wrote it down in the records, and life goes on, and they forgot about it. And one night before the king is going to be asked to kill Mordecai, the king comes up with a case of insomnia. And he can't sleep, and he says, bring me something to read. They brought him the history of his own kingdom, and he read and said, hey, this guy Mordecai saved my life. I don't think I ever did anything for him. So the next morning when Haman comes in with the plan to kill Mordecai, he says to Haman, what should I do for somebody who's done something really special for me? And Haman says, of course, he's talking about me, and lays out the agenda. And he says, good, go do that for Mordecai. And so it was that piece of history that caused Mordecai not to be killed, but Haman to be killed instead, changed the entire course of the nation of Israel because they had written it down, and the king went back and read that. If you remember the birth of the New Testament church, when Stephen is giving the sermon there in Acts 6 and 7, it is nothing but a history lesson. He said, guys, don't you remember what God did back here? We had Abraham, and he generation by generation, and says, here we are today with Jesus. So it was all a history lesson, and that is so important in the Scriptures. Now, history is something that has now become a political tool. Uh, there's a statement here from George Orwell that says, who controls the past controls the future, who controls the present controls the past. Let's take the latter part. Who controls the present controls the past. That's what's happening right now with education schools. Those who presently teach history are controlling the past. And they're creating a narrative that's never existed in our history. And from that narrative, if you, if you have a past like that, then who controls the past controls the future. So since we've been fundamentally flawed throughout our history, we've got to have a different future. We've got to abandon everything we're doing and go in a new direction. This is the essence of what's being taught. And so as you look at what's happening here with this, and it's a great action by Orwell, when you look at what's happening, you can see it in a lot of ways. For example, um, back in 1980, uh, Howard Zinn, who was a history professor, came out with this book, The History of uh, People's History of the United States. Now, history professor, history book makes sense, except 
When you look at history, history is filled with the good and the bad and the ugly. That's the story of every one of us. We've all got things we regret doing. We've all got things we wish we hadn't done. And we've all got things of which we're really proud that we did do. And that's just the story of every person, of every nation, of every people. Uh, that is the story of people, heroes in the Bible like David. You know, David is a great guy. He killed the lion. He killed the bear. And he killed Goliath. He's a man after God's own heart. God loved him so much he made a covenant with him. He, he's so much a good worshiper that most of the Psalms were written by David. However, David's also a really lousy father. We're told in the scriptures that he never said no to his son, Adonijah. We're also finding in the scriptures that his other son, Absalom, tried to kill David, tried to kill the father. And Absalom actually did kill one of David's other sons because David's other son had raped David's daughter. I mean, that's just a mess. So bad stuff. And then you have the falling of David where that he slept with Bathsheba and killed her husband, Uriah. So you have the good, the bad, and the ugly. Now, what happens is in the Bible, we study all of that because we can learn as much from the bad and the ugly as we can from the good. However, what happened here was let's present the history of the United States and let's leave out all the good and talk only about the bad and the ugly. And so that's what we've had for about 40 years now, a heavy dose of part of history. It's like studying the book of First and Second Samuel and only reading the part that deals with, with Bathsheba and Uriah. If you read that part, you'd never want to read another psalm in the rest of your life because a dude that can do that, I don't want to read anything he's got. Well, what happens is that's what we've done with American history. We've taken out all the rest of the story, and we're doing the bad and the ugly, and so it's called deconstruction. It's worked its way into what's going actively today. Uh, for example, if you look at the college board, they're the ones that produce the SAT test, college-bound test, but they also handle the AP test for 47 other courses. And an AP test is a student who's in high school that's so good in that subject that he can get college credit at the same time he's taking the high school course. So there's 460,000 students today. Every county in the United States is teaching this. And it's the AP, history, AP U.S. history standards from the college board. It's 162 pages long. That's a lot of stuff to teach. That's just the standards. Well, they somehow managed to neglect all of the founding fathers. That didn't happen. They somehow managed to neglect all of the American war for independence. America did not become an independent nation. We didn't fight for anything back then. Also managed to neglect all of the Abraham Lincoln stories. So there's no Gettysburg Address. There's no Emancipation Proclamation. There's no Civil War. And as a matter of fact, there is no Civil War because there was no military commanders on either side. And there's no battles. The Civil War has gone out of the history standards. And even as you get into newer things like World War II, all right, that's a lot of modern history. Uh, we have a daily radio program, Wall Builders Live, and about once every three or four weeks, we're interviewing a still-surviving World War II guy. Just a couple of weeks ago, the oldest World War II veteran in America just had his birthday, 112 years old. Amazing, amazing stories. I mean, just cool stories. So we've got guys who have lived through this who have a lot of story to tell. We just interviewed the, the last surviving Medal of Honor Marine. Uh, it's just an amazing story what happened. So... You look at the, the European theater with Hitler and about 48 million killed in that theater. And you look at the Pacific theater with about 20 million killed there. And you look at all the stuff that happened. Um, you look at the heroism of D-Day and, and Battle of the Bulge and Iwo Jima and all the other stuff. Except none of that, not a stitch of that is in the standards. There is no military commander. There's no Patton. There's no Eisenhower. There's no Nimitz. Uh, none of those guys are there. Uh, there matter of fact... Hitler's not even there. The Holocaust is not there. And Nazis are not there. What did they cover in World War II? What they cover says, 
the Americans dropped an atomic bomb which raised questions about American values. You go through the history course and the only bad nation in World War II is America because we dropped an atomic bomb that that killed 300,000 people. And actually, it was either that or facing an invasion. Uh, General Curtis LeMay, head of the Army Air Corps, said, we've been bombing the Japanese. They won't give up. Are we going to have to do a D-Day invasion? And they said, well, if we do, you'll have one million Americans killed. You'll have between two and four million allies killed. That's going to be the the French and and the British and the Australians. And you're going to have to kill between five and ten million Japanese before they'll surrender. So you're looking at 15 million. And Truman said, 15 million or an atomic bomb. I think we'll choose the latter. Two atomic bombs were dropped because Japan still wouldn't give up. 300,000 were killed with those two atomic bombs. And that's in place of 15 million. And somehow our values are twisted. We should have gone ahead and killed the 15 million and not used the atomic bomb. Makes no sense at all. By the way, also about American values, Japan should not have been in World War II at that point because they've lost all their allies. We have defeated the, the, everything in the European theater. Everything's now focused on the Pacific theater. We won every battle in the Pacific. I mean, we went island hopping and won every one of those. Japanese have no reason to still be in the war except their mentality was such that you never surrender. You, you die and you kill as many as you can. <coughs> Excuse me. So we said, all right, we've got to stop the war. So we decided to bomb all the military facilities in Japan. We did so. And before we did so, we dropped 70 million leaflets. Now, we own those original leaflets. 70 million leaflets on the Japanese people saying, Japanese people, here are 35 cities we're going to bomb. We're going to bomb them because they have military factories there. But we do not want to hurt a single civilian. So we want all civilians to get away from the city. Tell your leaders to surrender. They can't win. We're going to destroy military capabilities. So we dropped 70 million leaflets telling them, We even dropped leaflets saying the atomic bomb is coming. We have one bomb that will do what 2,000 B-29s can do. We don't want to use that bomb. Tell your leaders to surrender. Before we dropped the atomic bomb, we took the island of Saipan. We set up a radio station called KSAI. Every 15 minutes, we broadcast across the entire island of Japan, the bomb is coming. Get away from the... We told them Nagasaki and Hiroshima, the two... We called that by name. So when the bomb hit, there were two bombs hit. There were 150,000 people killed between the two bombs. There were 150,000 more that died from radiation afterwards. So we end up with 300,000 killed, and then they surrender. Now, interesting, we warned them of every city before we bombed it. We told them we want no civilian casualties. We want everybody moving away. We told them before we dropped the atomic bomb, and we've got the bad values on this thing. I'm not sure I understand that. And by the way, let me also point out the Japanese had one prisoner of war camp in which they beheaded more than 300,000 prisoners in that prisoner of war camp. So there were more people killed by their beheadings than there were with two atomic bombs. The Japanese officers in prisoner of war camps used to have beheading competitions to see who could behead 100 uh, prisoners the fastest. And they'd have to have runoffs because they're really good at behead. Really? How come our students didn't get that part of the story? So what happens is we come out with this deconstruction view of America where that America is terrible. It's so bad we have to tear it down. We're going to have to start again. So we're seeing this in standards now as well. This year a number of states passed their history standards. I've been appointed in a number of states to write the history and social studies standards in those states. And, and so we see what's going on. And, and this year 
depending on which state you're in, you now have the new history standards for the next 10 to 14 years. And they've decided that they're not going to teach anymore. Things they have removed, they're not going to teach the American Revolution, they're not going to teach the Civil War or World War I or World War II or the Holocaust. All that's gone. What we're going to teach is 1619 and how evil America has been since the very beginning. So we have a complete shift in what's being taught. And so as a result of what we have with this, this is why we see the rise of Marxism and socialism and communism. It's because we've, we've created a vacuum. None of this would have worked 30 years ago. What we're seeing with critical race theory would not have worked at all because we knew too much about our own history. Now we know so little about our history that we believe we're fundamentally flawed, we're systemically racist. Every nation, by the way, and every people group has had trouble with racism. You know why? Because people are involved. People can be racist. People can be really bad jerks. That's just the story of every people. The story of America is quite different, and we don't get this with the 1619 narrative. We don't, for example, know that the first place in the world to abolish slavery was the, the northern states. 1804, every state had passed an abolition law. Nobody did it before that happened. The first nation in the world to pass a law banning the slave trade happened in March of 1807 when America banned the international slave trade. No nation did it before we did it. In 1819, America funded a naval squadron to go run off the coast of West Africa and keep any other nation from taking slaves out of Africa. We're going to end the slave trade. Great Britain thought that's a great idea. They joined us and our two nations. Now, the coast of Africa is thousands of miles long. We can't stop all the ships. But we stopped hundreds of ships from going to Africa and taking slaves out. America and Great Britain were the only two doing that, and yet we're the worst nation in the world. And then when we ended slavery in 1865 at the end of the Civil War with the 13th Amendment, we were the fourth nation in the world out of hundreds of nations. We're the fourth nation to end slavery in the world. And arguably, the entire anti-slavery movement in the world started out of America back with those northern states. And that's what influenced people like Wilberforce in England and others seeing what America had done. So somehow, we're the most racist nation in the world, and yet we don't even know our own history. Now, this is not to say America didn't have racial problems. We absolutely did. But it's interesting to see that even today... Uh, there's 193 nations in the world today, and 94 of those nations still have not outlawed slavery. Slavery is legal in 94 nations as we sit here this morning. We actually have 40 million active slaves in the world today. There's 9.2 million in Africa. There's 3 million at least in China. We know of 3 million. We know there's more than that, but Chinese don't give you good numbers. There's 40 million, and that's three times more than we had in the entire 400-year history of the African slave trade, which is 12.7 million. We've got three times more slaves today than we had in the 400 years of the slave trade, and what we're focused on is what happened 400 years ago, not what's going on today. How does that happen? We don't even know about the slave trade today. Uh, Glenn Beck, about six years ago, started something called the Nazarene Fund. He and I run the Nazarene Fund. And we have saved hundreds of thousands of Christians out of slavery in the Middle East and Syria and Iraq and elsewhere. And, and it's not just hyperbola. I mean, we've had two of our guys killed in Operation Saving Slaves. We've had one of our guys shot 17 times. He keeps going back because he just hates slavery. I mean, this is real stuff that's going on, and we want to talk about how flawed America has been from the beginning. And America has had more, America's had its problems, but it's also had more successes, more opportunities, and more world leadership than any other nation. So you go back and, and look at what's happening. In critical race theory, what happens is all these groups have taken off on it now, and they've got a lot of traction footage, and they're advocating this rioting and, and radicalization and, and rebellion. 
And, and so that's the essence of it. And if you don't know much about what critical race theory is called, people are hearing the name and don't really know. Uh, critical race theory takes as a starting point that America was founded to protect and preserve slavery. Now, that is a problem. This goes to the 1619 Project. America was founded Jamestown, 1607, and slaves arrived in Jamestown in 1619. And from the beginning, America has been all about promoting slavery, protecting and promoting slavery. Well, time out. So they've got their history all wrong. Slavery didn't come to America in 1619. In 1526, the Spanish brought slavery to the Carolinas. In, 15, in 1655, they brought slavery to Florida. So New York Times is wrong. Slavery was here a century before they point 1619. And then on top of that, when they look at 1619, what happened was there was a Portuguese slave ship going by off the coast of Virginia on its way down to, to Cuba, on its way down south, the Caribbean. And some English privateers went and captured that ship. Pirates, they took all the stuff off it, and they found about 40 slaves there. And there were two ships that said, well, let's divide all the, the loot. And so they divided all the, the goods, and they said, what do we do with these 40 slaves? And, well, you take half, we'll take half, let's do something with them. Closest place is Jamestown. They got the Jamestown and said, we got 19 slaves here on this ship. You guys want slaves? And Jamestown said, slavery is illegal in Virginia. We don't want slaves here. Well, we don't want them, so we're just dumping them on the shore. So those 19 became indentured servants, which is also what happened to the white folks who came there. White, black, didn't matter. Indentured servant, you work for several years until you've paid off to the state what it takes for you to, to live. So if they bring you over on a ship, there's the expenses, and they're going to teach you some profession or whatever. And so after those number of years, you then become, the state gives you landowner, and you're totally free. So you're a free landowner. And one of those 19 slaves that had been on that Portuguese slave ship is a guy named Anthony Johnson. He became a free, slave, he became a free landowner, and he started indenturing and sponsoring indentures, people to come over, they work for him seven years, and they get free, they get free land, and they're free. And in, eight, in 1653, he went to court in Virginia and sued because one of his indentured guys that he'd sponsored brought over was a guy named John Caser, who was another black man. And Anthony Johnson went to court and said, this bum is so lazy, I can't get any work out of him. Uh, seven years is not going to repay me what I've invested in this guy. So I'm asking the court to let me own him for life. And the court said, yeah, you can do that. And so the first occasion of slavery in America was a black suing to own another black man, and it happened in 1653, not in 1607 or 1619. Plus, when the second slave ship arrived, it went to Massachusetts. It went to Plymouth. When it arrived there, they promptly freed all the slaves and imprisoned all the slave owners, and they quoted the Bible where the Bible in Exodus 20 talks about Man-stealing is a capital offense. Man-stealing is going to a nation, stealing someone from there, taking them to another nation, selling them into slavery. And the pilgrims quoted that and said, absolutely not. We'll not have the slave trade going here, which is why the northern states were anti-slavery from the very start. This is why in 1641 you had blacks elected to office, Matthias de Souza, in 1768, Wentworth Cheswell, black elected to office in the white community in New Hampshire, re-elected for 49 years, held eight different political positions, 1793, Thomas Hercules elected in Pennsylvania in a white community, black guys. See, the, the North was a whole different story, and what, what they want to do is say, Jamestown, 1619, that's all of America. No, it's not. That's part of America, and that's the part they got wept, by the way. If you're not aware, they lost the Civil War. The South didn't win. The North did, which is why we abolished slavery and gave equal rights. So that's, this, this notion is wrong, but this is CRT. America takes a starting point. America was founded to protect and preserve slavery, and the source of America, an American constitutional system is the source of our societal ills, and the greatest societal ill we have is racism. So here's the deal. 
If you want to get rid of racism, you have got to get rid of that constitutional system that created the racism, which is why we see the attacks on the constitution of the system today, because this is what we've been teaching for a number of years now. Critical race theory is nothing new. It's just now becoming public for most people to see. It's been going for 20 to 30 years in the universities. This is nothing new. So this is, this is what we look at, and it's interesting. This is the document that's the source of all racism, which is why two weeks ago at the National Archives where they housed the actual Constitution, the actual Declaration, they now have language up that says harmful language alert. Don't read this document. It's really bad language. Now, wait a minute. Are you talking about the language in the Declaration that says all men are created equal? Is that the harmful language? Or are you talking about the 13th Amendment of the Constitution that ends slavery, the 14th Amendment that gives full equal rights, the 15th Amendment gives full voting rights? Is that the harmful language? What harmful language are you talking about? That, that's the language that changed everything. Don't read the document. So if you don't read the document, you don't know what it says, and then we can tell you what it says, and then you'll know what it really says. So this is the stuff that's happening in education right now. And it's not education, it's indoctrination. I mean, we're no longer covering math and science and all the stuff. We're covering gender, and we're covering race, and we're covering all the stuff that's social. So when you look at the, the document, we've lost our... And I don't say we mean in this congregation. I mean America by and large has lost its appreciation for what we have here. Because of the 193 nations we do have in the world today, America got its constitution in 1789. It's the only constitution we've had. Let me show you what's happened to every other nation in the world since 1789. And whether you take nation as friend or foe, look how many constitutions they've had in the same period of time we've had one. Imagine living in a nation that has gone through that much change and that much turmoil and that much instability. And again, these are both our enemies and our allies. It doesn't matter. This is the story of the world. As a matter of fact, a good question to ask is, okay, in the 5,800 years of recorded human history, what is the average length of a constitution in the history of the world? In over 5,800 years, the average length of a constitution is 17. Just about four weeks ago, three weeks ago, we celebrated the birthday of the Constitution, September 17th, and it's 234 years old. Now, somehow, I like not having a new Constitution every 17 years, but we don't seem to appreciate that. We think everybody's like us. We live here in America, everybody's just like us. We need to be like everybody else. No, the average nation, on average, a nation averages a violent revolution every generation and a new constitution every 17 years. That's not our story. One violent revolution, one constitution, we have stability that we don't even appreciate. In addition to that, our creativity, America is 4% of the world's population. Now, 4% of the world's population should produce 4% of the world's whatever. But when you look at creativity measured by copyright, patent protection, et cetera, America produces more inventions, more cures, more medical technology, more scientific technology, more space technology, more everything than the other 96% of the world combined. We have more than anybody, more than all the rest of them put together, and we don't recognize that we're different. As a matter of fact, I, I do a lot of speak, speaking for U.S. military. Um, got two kids active duty military, but do a lot of training for officers and soldiers and whatnot. And so I was over in Germany, and I think we got 26 or 27 military bases in Germany. And so as I was over in Germany, they put me up in a five-star hotel. Now, that's cool stuff. I'm a cowboy from Texas. We got a really simple life. It's really easy on the ranch. And, you know, you're in castles and surrounded with all this old world elegance. And they put me up at a five-star German hotel, which is really cool for this boy. And it would have been a whole lot better if they would have had internet in that five-star hotel. <laughs> May I point out, even Motel 6 in America, every Motel 6 has internet. I mean, 
we just assume that what we've got, everybody else has. And when it comes to prosperity, the same thing. Our 4% of the world's population produces 25% of the world's gross domestic product. According to, fences, according to figures from the Census Bureau, if you live in poverty in America today, your lifestyle is higher than the middle class in Europe. Matter of fact, Hawaii and Mississippi came out and said, unless you make more than $58,000 a year, you should not get off of welfare. Really. The World Bank sets the poverty standard for the world at $2 a day. $730 a year is the poverty standard for the world. In America, $58,000. And you shouldn't come off welfare unless you're getting $58,000. See, we don't understand how different we are. And somehow we want to tear this thing down and, and, and feel guilty for... See, all of this that we have is something called American exceptionalism. This is a term that was given us back in 1831 by Alexis de Tocqueville, who wrote the book Democrats in America. And he said, the Americas, this is, this is special. Never seen this in the world. Don't think we'll ever see it again. It's interesting. We look at that and say, now, where did we get that? Because if we're different from other nations, and that should never be a, a source of, of cocky or, or arrogance or brag or anything. This is just saying, this, this is, we are the exception, not the rule. For whatever reason, we're not like every other nation. Now, why would that be? Well, it's always fair to look at political leaders and say, well, who are the leaders responsible? And we can say, well, you got the George Washingtons who help us do this, and you got the John Hancocks and the John Adams, and all that's great. Here's what I find interesting is, historically speaking, back in 1816, a young man named Hezekiah Niles, and he's a young man of that generation, kind of like a millennial of that day. He hadn't lived through the American Revolution, but he's decided to write a book on the American Revolution. And so in 1816, he writes old man Adams and says, you know, 40 years ago, you were one of the guys who gave us all the stuff we enjoy today. You were there, you saw it, you're an eyewitness. I'm writing a book on the American Revolution. Tell me who you think were the leaders most responsible for what we enjoy today in America. And Adams says, all right, you want to know who's most responsible for what we have today? And he said, yeah. And by the way, we own the book that he did. It came out in 1824. It's called Principles and Acts of the Revolution. We own about 160,000 documents uh, from American history, about 120,000 documents from before 1812. So we've got thousands of these originals. And so in that book, when it came out, it's interesting that John Adams wrote back and said, well, you, if you want to know who's responsible, he said, right up top, you've got to put the Reverend Dr. Samuel Cooper. And then you've got the Reverend Dr. Jonathan Mayhew. And of course, there's the Reverend George Whitfield. And don't forget the Reverend Charles Chauncey. And you go, who? These are all preachers. Yeah. And most of them we don't know today. Now, there's a chance we know Whitfield. But the chances that we know Mayhew, Cooper, or Chauncey, slim to none. See, we don't study these guys, these preachers, and this is what history is. This is what the eyewitnesses said. We don't study them whether they're white or black. I mean, who in the world is Richard Allen or Absalom Jones, and who's John Morant, and who's Lemuel Haynes, and who's Harry Hoosier? We don't know these names. And let me take Harry Hoosier just for a minute. Harry Hoosier was a preacher back in the Great Awakenings. Now, there's a lot of famous preachers from the Great Awakenings. Harry Hoosier's not one we know, but we know George Whitfield, and we know the Wesleys, John and Charles Wesley, and we know people like Francis Asbury. We know that these guys had massive crowds. We also know that Francis Asbury said that Harry Hoosier draws bigger crowds than I do. Really? That's some really big crowds. And we also know people like Benjamin Rush. Now, Benjamin Rush is a signer of the Declaration, ratified the Constitution. John Adams said he's one of the three most notable founding fathers. He said, you got George Washington, Ben Franklin, and Benjamin Rush. And we go, who? Never heard of Benjamin Rush. Benjamin Rush, notable founding father. He said, I've heard Harry preach. And Harry's the greatest orator I've ever heard. Now, that's impressive because you've heard Patrick Henry and you've heard all these other guys. And you think Harry's the best you've ever heard? Well, it's interesting, Harry's Hoosier was largely among blue-collar Americans, and particularly among the, the pioneers and, and the Western-thinking people, the, the explorers and the mountain men and all these rugged guys, the, 
that live that rugged life. And they lived a rugged life and their, their language, their behavior, everything is part of that, except when they got converted, it all changed. And, and it's really different. And, and so what happens is he converts these guys. Now, now, Harry preached largely along the East Coast uh, of America. He preached in, in Pennsylvania and Philadelphia, and he preached in Jersey, and preached in Delaware, et cetera. But as America started expanding and moving west, as they went west, these explorer guys that had become his converts moved west with them because that's what they're into is exploration and, and mountaineering and trapping, et cetera. And so about 1806, 1807, the furthest west America's gone is into the Indiana Territory. And at that point, the other trappers look at these guys and say, man, they're so different from us. What's up with them? And the answer was, oh, they're a bunch of those Hoosiers. Hoosiers. I wonder where they came. Now, you should be able to associate Hoosier State. I wonder how many people in Indiana know that they were named after a black evangelist. You know, probably very few. Now, I know of no other dude who's got a state named after him, and yet we don't cover him in the textbooks. See, if we covered our own history, we wouldn't bind a lot of the critical race theory stuff that we hear now. We don't even know our own heroes. We don't even know the guys who shaped the nation, and that's part of the problem we've got. So you have Harry Hoosier. Now, from going back to John Adams, he points to these preachers, and, and it's interesting. Why would John Adams point to these preachers and say these are the guys responsible? Well, historians have documented that if you take the Declaration of Independence, every right set forth in the Declaration of Independence had been preached from the American pulpit prior to 1763. So here's a fun exercise for you. Go read the Declaration of Independence and read it as a listing of sermon topics that we've been hearing in church for the last 15 years because that's what the Declaration was. Everything that was preached in there, all rights had been covered from the pulpit. Maybe Rob was alive back then because that's the kind of stuff he would do. So, that's, so this is why John Adams said our pulpits have thundered. Now, when you look at the sermons of the day, and again, we own thousands of these sermons, these original sermons, what you'll find is they address biblical relevancy. Let me just take you through a few of them. Uh, this is a sermon that was preached in 1755 in Boston because of the earthquake that happened. Now, this sermon, earthquakes are not common in Boston, and maybe out here, but not Boston. So what happened was the Reverend Jonathan Mayhew, one of the guys listed by John Adams, preached a sermon on this. Now, I will tell you that I, I believe every Christian should read through the Bible from cover to cover at least once a year. We should know God's word. We're told you don't live by bread alone. You live by every word that comes out of the mouth of God. Eating a meal once every month, that would be crazy. We'd all be dead. Well, spiritually, it's the same thing. You need God's word. So I thought, okay, as many times, I've got a lot of white hair, so I've read the Bible a lot in my years. I thought, okay, if I had to preach a sermon on earthquakes, what could I do? And I thought, okay, Amos talks about an earthquake. There's the earthquake under King Uzziah in Chronicles. There's the earthquake when Jesus died. There's the earthquake when Jesus was resurrected. I think I could do a good 20-minute sermon on earthquakes. Well, good for me. That's a five-week sermon on earthquakes. <laughs> Try that. Now, I was shocked, and so I went and did a quick web search, and I'm shocked at how many earthquakes occurred in the Bible that I've never noticed before. See, I, I, I don't think about looking at the Bible as a practical guidebook for life. It's a devotional book. It's a great spiritual guidebook. No, it's a book on every aspect of life. So natural disasters, I can show you a bunch of other sermons on natural disasters. Uh, this is a sermon on homosexuality, so LGBTQ issues were covered back then. Today, polling says that 70% of Christians will not talk about the issue because they're afraid of being attacked if they do so. 
uh, they get beat up on social media or deplatformed or canceled or whatever. So we've gone silent on that, but the church used to be very active in speaking about that. Uh, this is a sermon, as you can see, it's on comets. At the bottom it says, two sermons occasioned by the late blazing stars. Where are comets in the Bible? Well, it turns out there's a lot the Bible says about astronomy, including solar eclipses, lunar eclipses, the discoveries of planets, calls constellations by name in the Bible, Pleiades, Orion, etc. So there's a lot in the Bible on astronomy. We had sermons on that. Uh, here's a sermon on the infirmities and comforts of old age. Probably not a popular topic today, but certainly aging is a very real topic because everybody gets old, which creates issues. Everybody deals with people who are getting old, which creates issues. So the Bible gave good guidance on aging. Here's a sermon on the religion and patriotism, the constituents of a good soldier. It's a deployment sermon. And the Bible has so much to say about the military that even when John the Baptist was baptizing, he gave specific instructions for officers and for soldiers. So we had a lot of military sermons. Uh, we had sermons. This is a relation of the medical profession to the ministry, which is health care. We don't think about the Bible and health care. And yet there's a great book from 1961 called None of These Diseases where Dr. S.I. McMillan says, you know, when God gave the health care code in the Bible, Back to the, the Hebrews there at the Mount, at the time, the Babylonians and the Assyrians and Egyptians thought these guys are crazy. We're the leaders in science and health technology. And what he just gave these slaves out here in the desert, these guys are nuts. And he says, and now, 3,000 years later, we can put a, a medical, medical study to every single health care provision in the Bible. Now, that was in 61. Add another 60 years to that, the Bible's got the most effective health code ever done by any nation in the history of the world, and most people don't know what the health code of the Bible is. Uh, you also have this. This is a proper uh, sermon on the, the, the character and tendency of the property tax. Economics, yeah. Bible talks about the capital gains tax. It talks about progressive income tax, the minimum wage. It talks about capitation taxes. Bible is loaded up with economic advice. Matter of fact, the entire free market system we enjoy in America was built on five verses historically. 2 Thessalonians 3.10, 1 Timothy 5.8, Matthew 20, Luke 29, and Matthew 25 were the five verses that created the most prosperous economic system in the history of the world, and it came out of America. We also had sermons like this, the higher law, the fugitive slave bill of the millions of laws passed by Congress may be the single worst bill passed by Congress of the fugitive slave law. Now, I'm not going to go into all the details, but I'm just going to point out that pulpits across America said, Americans, if you love God, you have to disobey this federal law. If you obey this federal law, you're just obeying God's law, and you have to choose God over me. It was amazing how that we called out for civil disobedience because here's what God says. Here's what government says. God's above government. You have to go with God, not government. I mean, so we dealt with social policies, all sorts of issues, not just this. Uh, this is a ceremony election. So we dealt with every topic that you can imagine back in the day. And so as you look at that, that's why they all address biblical relevancy. Now, how about today? Where are we today? Well, every one of these topics is popping up on the screen, has been in the news in the last 24 months, and I chose them all because every one of these topics is thoroughly covered in the Bible. Now, the question is, can most Christians answer where these are addressed in the Bible? See, we, don't, we again don't look at the Bible as the practical guidebook it was on immigration or on due process or whatever. We see it as a spiritual devotional book, and we've been told that our spiritual life is here and real life is over here, and we can't make that compartmentalization. So what you see here, most Christians, only one out of 16 Christians can put God's word to the issues of the day, only one out of 16. Um, and when we look at pastors, there's 380. 
4,000 pastors, senior pastors, and churches in America. In Poland, about 500 a day. George Barna, get to work with Barna a lot. In Poland, that we find that only 2.8% of pastors actually address the issues that are in the news from a biblical standpoint. Now, Rob's one of them. Just what he covered up here this morning probably is more than 100 churches around here have covered in the last five years. You know, So you've got more today than most Christians get in five years. But that's the anomaly, and it shouldn't be. This is, you look back to the, to the American founding, it's very different. So as a result of where we are today, you see a real decline in Christians in America. Back in 2000, 85% of Americans professed Christianity. Today, it is 65%. So we've lost 20 points in 20 years. And when polling and asking people, why did you leave the church? Two out of three say because it lacks relevancy. It doesn't deal with the stuff I see on a daily basis. It doesn't help me understand how to live my life on a daily basis. And so this is where things are changing. This is why we say we need a revival. We're praying for revivals. We see groups across America saying we've got to have revival. And I agree, but the problem with praying for revival and having revivals, we're probably not going to have one the way we think. And there's a major obstacle, and it is our focus on national stuff. Let me see if I can explain Everybody gets their news from somewhere. And, and, you know, if you're on the right, it's probably going to be, I don't know, it's going to be Fox or it's going to be The Blaze or it's going to be Newsmax or Victory News or something. If you're on the left, it's MSNBC, CNN, whatever it is. But the deal is what you're getting is national stories. You haven't heard a story about Waterton, New York. You haven't heard one about Scotts Bluff, Nebraska, or Yukon, Oklahoma, or Jacksboro, Texas. We get a heavy dose of what's in the national news. We, we see what's happening in Congress, and we see what's happening at the Supreme Court. We see what's happening at the White House. And by the way, I'm involved in all three of those. I've been involved in 13 cases of the U.S. Supreme Court, involved in one now, very involved at the White House, because about five, maybe six weeks ago, the military actually, actually asked us over the Nazarene Fund to take over the operations of evacuating people out of the airports there in Afghanistan. So we've been fighting that battle. We, we've now got about, since that point in time, we've... <clears throat> since that point in time, we've moved about 6,000 people out of Afghanistan. Yesterday, we moved about another 500 out of Afghanistan. And, and that includes, uh, that includes uh, lots of Christians, Lots of American allies, uh, I mean, just uh, lots of Americans were there. And so we're getting these out, and our biggest opponent has not been the Taliban. The biggest opponent has been the State Department. We've had our planes in the air, and the State Department called ahead of the country and said, don't take the planes, send them back. I mean, we had so many that were going out. I can't tell you how many planes the State Department has canceled and sent back. So we finally got the White House to weigh in on it. The um, Secretary Blinken started saying, no, let these planes out. And the State Department said, no, we're not going to let them out. So now you get the State Department fighting the administration. So we're working with them. And so we get Congress involved. Over the last two or three weeks, I've talked to dozens of congressmen, state reps, or, uh, reps and senators both. Because since the White House couldn't get it done, we went to the Prime Minister of Pakistan and said, hey, Taliban came out of your country. Can you control these guys? And so he's the one who opened the door to start letting us get because he wants to get away from the Taliban, wants to be a civilized nation. And so now we went last week to the prime minister of Albania, <coughs> who, excuse me, who said that other nations need to get involved in getting these Christian refugees out here. So involved in all that stuff. So I'm involved with members of Congress and Supreme Court and the White House. And you know what? I can't get any of them to do what I want. None of them. And I've got connections. 
And the average America doesn't have any connections at all. So what happens is we get frustrated, we get paralyzed, and we should be looking not at the national level, but the local level. And let me show you why I say that. This is where we miss it, and this is where we're going to miss a revival that happens if we don't get our eyes in the right direction. Let me take you back to the American War for Independence, because in the American War for Independence, what occurred in the first four battles, when you look at these first four battles, and it's Lexington top right, then Concord, uh, North Bridge of Concord left, then the road to Boston, and then Bunker Hill. In none of those battles did anybody contact the national commander-in-chief and say, George, we got to have your help. We need it now. Nobody did that. The reason was they all said, it's our community. We'll take care of it. You, you do other stuff. See, out of the 80 or so battles in the American War for Independence, very few of them were national battles. Nearly all were local victories, local battles. And let me take you through that and how the, the local stuff is what turned, turned the tide. Let's go over to the top right there, Lexington. Seven, on April the 19th, 1775, 700 British came to town, and 70 Americans from the town went out to meet them and say, you're not going to do this in our community. It's just not going to happen. And actually, I didn't say that right. It wasn't 70 Americans that went out there. It was the church of the Reverend Jonas Clark who went out there. And Jonas Clark had been teaching his people that if it comes to war, you're not allowed to fire the first shot. You cannot start a war. God will not bless an offensive war. You are allowed to defend yourself. So if they start it, you can fire back, but you can't start anything. So when those 70 guys lined up in front of the 70, 700 British, Deacon John Parker, who led the guys, said, okay, you remember what Pastor Clark's been, been telling us, you can't fire the first shot. He says, so don't fire unless fired upon. But if they mean to have a war, let it begin here. We're not going to back up from this. This is the wrong thing for them to do in our town. So the British did get the first round at all the Americans who didn't shoot back, and that's where 18 Americans hit the ground that morning. And they included Americans like black patriots, Prince Estabrook, white patriots like John Robbins, black and white going to church together there in the northern colonies. Don't hear that out of the 1619 narrative. So then after that battle at Lexington, the second one you'll see about three hours later is North Bridge at Concord. The British have reached there, but now word has also reached the Americans. The British have fired at us. We're now allowed to fire back. So it was at North Bridge of Concord that 300 Americans went out to meet the 700 British. And again, I didn't get that right. It's not 300 Americans. It was the church of the Reverend William Emerson who went out to meet the British and said, you're not coming to our community. This is not going to happen. And so at that point is where the British hit the ground for the first time. Two British soldiers hit the ground. The British said, this is not going right because we had 70 opponents. Now we have 300 opponents. We better get back to Boston real quick or we'll be outnumbered quick. And so that's the battle on the road to Boston. It lasted several hours, and they were outnumbered because along the road to Boston were 4,500 Americans there firing at the 700 British that were going back. Now, where'd those 4,500 Americans come from? Well, Reverend Payson Phillips grabbed his church and said, let's go defend the town, guys. And you had Reverend Benjamin Balch who grabbed his church. See, it was the church that was saying, this is our community. You're not going to do this in our community. We're, we're not going to put up with this. And when you get to the Battle of Bunker Hill, the same thing. Reverend Joseph Willard grabbed two companies out of his church and said, let's go across town. They're attacking on the other side of town. This is, this is where all these early battles were. So what happened was we won enough local victories that it became a national victory. But it wasn't because of national action that we did it. George was important to have George in the Battle of Yorktown and Brandywine and Monmouth. But by and large, even there, it was local areas that showed up to help support him in those battles. So it was really local stuff. And it's the same way when you look also at revival. So we're praying for revival. Hey, revival is not a national movement. It is a local movement. Well, what do you mean it's not a national movement? Because you have the Great Awakenings. you got George Whitfield. I mean, this dude preached 34 years. He preached 18,000 sermons, and 80% of all Americans physically heard him preach a sermon. He talked about message penetration. 
80% physically heard him preach a sermon? That's a national revival. No, it's not. What happened in that revival was in 34 years, he jumped on horseback and rode from Maine to Georgia and back seven different times. And he preached at every single town along the way. And he took a different route every time. The reason 80% of Americans heard him preach a sermon is he preached in 80% of the communities in America. He's in this community with 500. They have a revival there. It goes to Philadelphia. There's 12,000. They have a revival there. It goes to Westchester. There's 1,500. They have a revival there. It goes over here, 725. He had revivals in every town in America. And so many towns had revivals that it appears to be a national revival, but it was a bunch of local revivals all over the place. So that's why we don't talk today about Samuel Cooper. He's the dude that kept the revival going in Boston. And this is one of the guys that John Adams talked about. You have the same thing with Gilbert Tennant. He's the one who kept the revival going all the time in Philadelphia because it was local revivals. In Virginia, in the rural areas, it was Samuel Davies. So it was a bunch of local revivals that now looks like a national revival because it happened all over the nation, but it was local stuff. And so national revivals occur locally. Now, the obsession with a national focus that we have has to be replaced with the local focus. And, and let me give you some examples of that, even something as simple as civic engagement. You take a look at voting. Constitutionally, to be a voter in America requires two things. You have to be 18 years old. You have to be a legal citizen. Those two things. And that's 100% of the people who are 18 years old or legal citizens can be voters in America. The only thing we ask you to do beyond that, please register. We want to make sure seven people didn't vote for you or you didn't vote for seven people. So we just want you to register. At this point, only 65.3% of Americans are registered. So one, 120 million Americans say, I don't care what happens to America, I'm not going to be part of anything that happens to it. So we're looking at 120 million that decided to have no voice at all in this. But then you get into elections. And what we had last year is called a, a presidential election. For the last 11 presidential elections, going back to 1980, 11 elections, the average voter turnout is right at 54%. But that's not 54% of adults. That's 54% of registered voters. That's 54% of 65%, which means that 36% of Americans voted in a presidential election. It takes half of that to win, which is 18%. So when you look at the election we're going to have next November, that's an off-year election. And in off-year elections, when we elect our governors and we elect our senators and reps, et cetera, in off-year elections, we average having roughly 38% of Americans vote. But that's 38% of 65%, which means 26% of Americans vote for governor and senator to rep. And half of that is what it takes to win. So essentially, at this point in American history, one out of five Americans is choosing the president of the United States, and one out of eight Americans is choosing our governors, et cetera, et cetera. It's not a high turnout. It's just, and Christians are very bad about being in those who don't turn out because we're just disgusted with politics, and we're disgusted with national things. doesn't matter who you elect to Congress. They don't get anything changed. Yeah, because we keep focusing at national, not local. When you look at local, it's a whole different story. Turnout in most cities is around 6%. Uh, that's 6% of 65%, which means about 4% actual adults vote. It takes half of that to win, which is 2%. Let me go to your near neighbor, uh, Los Angeles, one of the largest cities in the nation. As a matter of fact, to be the mayor of Los Angeles is being the same as governor in 23 states. The population of Los Angeles is larger than 23 individual states. So Garcetti could be governor in 23 states. Garcetti brags about the fact that he was elected with 2.9% of the vote. That was what he was like. You couldn't elect a governor with that, but see, city stuff we don't look at. We don't look at local stuff. Let me take you to Houston. Go to Texas for a minute, my state. In Houston, it's another large city. It is the equivalent of being the governor of 20 different states to be the mayor of Houston. 
And in Houston, elected Anise Parker as mayor. She's the first openly lesbian mayor of Houston. And she was elected with 4.9% of the vote, but that's 4.9% of 65%. Roughly 3.3% of the vote is what she's elected with. Once she got in office, she said, you know, I am really tired of hearing these Christians say that marriage is between a man and a woman because that's a direct attack on me. That's not. We, we believe that before you were born. We'll believe that after you're gone. It's not an attack on you. So she said, and she passed what was called a Houston Equal Rights Ordinance, HERO. 200 cities have passed equal rights ordinances. Big cities tend to do this. She passed it and that said, that ordinance said, if you say that marriage is between a man and a woman, that is a hate crime. That is a direct attack. So as a result, she, and by the way, of the 200 cities, San Antonio is another city that's done it. In San Antonio, if you say that marriage is between a man and a woman, it is a class C misdemeanor. It's a $500 a day fine. You can never hold office in San Antonio, and you can never do any contract work with them. You can't be a paver. You can't be a landscaper. If you just say, I believe marriage between a man and a woman, at that point, it's a hate crime. So when this happened, she went after a number of pastors in Houston, said, I, I, I'm subpoenaing all of your sermons. I want to see all your sermons. I want to see what you said about marriage. Did you say marriage between a man and a woman? That's a hate crime. I'm going to prosecute you. So she had all their emails, all their correspondence, all their texts, all, everything. Went after, and the city... Wait, the city said, wait, time out. That's not what we elected you for, and that's certainly not what we thought was going on. So what happened was 4,500 churches got together and said, let's put this as a referendum. Let's vote on this. And so they got it up for vote. We were engaged in that election. And so the day before the election, either the Houston Post or Houston Chronicle came out and said specifically that, well, we, the polling shows right now that uh, the mayor is going to win overwhelmingly. Uh, it's going to be a 60-40 blowout landslide. That's where all the polling is. Yeah, maybe. Uh, but what happened, 4,500 churches got involved. The voter turnout went up to 14%. And as a result, we won the election by 22-point margin. They got crushed 61 to 39. Now, I will tell you that 14% is still pathetic, but that's five times higher than what most cities have. And so it was a landslide. Um, Take you also to what happened in Fort Worth. Fort Worth, about six years ago, Fort Worth Independent School District is the first school district in the nation to say, we think there should be no genders for bathrooms and there should be no genders for locker rooms and no genders for showers. Kids just choose what they want. (coughs) Now, when they did that, of course, most of us were, have you lost your brain, what little you had? And what happened was it was picked up at the national level. Uh, Arne Duncan, who was the Secretary of Education under Obama, said, that's a great idea. Picked it up and said, here's the new policy. If you get federal funds at your schools, you will not have genders. You will not have genders in bathrooms or locker rooms. Students can choose what they want. It's up to them to, to choose. So it was out of Fort Worth that this policy came, which... You know, that was really disgusting to me because I live very close to Fort Worth, grew up in Fort Worth. Fort Worth is known as Cowtown, USA. Now, I am a cowboy from the country. I can tell you, if you live in the country, it's really easy to tell what gender things are. It's, it's very simple. There's no confusion. I've never seen a bull become a cow or a cow become a bull. And I will point out that for 5,800 years of recorded human history, if you wanted to know what your gender was, you look between your legs, not your ears. Now we look between our ears to see what our gender is. And so it's a... So this crazy national policy comes out of Cowtown, USA. Are you kidding me? 
So I, I looked at the city, and the city has 800,000 voters, and of the 800,000 voters, the president of the school board who came up with this policy, who got it through, was elected with less than 1,200 votes. Actually, I think it was 1,182, and that really ticked me off because that's not much at all. And so I started looking in his district and quickly found an evangelical church with more than 3,000 adults in the evangelical church, Bible-believing adults. That one church could have kept him from being on the school board, which would have prevented the whole national policy because that national policy came out of one school district that got picked up at the national level and spread everywhere, and one church could have prevented that. See, this is, again, if you take care of your community, you're taking care of the nation, and that's what our eyes have to be on. So a couple other examples, Bentonville, Arkansas. This is the home of Walmart. 40,000 people live in Bentonville, and a Christian lady in Bentonville said, nah, -uh, you ain't doing this in my school. And so she ran for school board, and she got elected. In a town of 40,000 citizens, she received 35 total votes, and she was elected to the school board of 35 votes. Now, let me take you to Riceville, Iowa, because in Riceville, Iowa, a farmer up there said, you ain't doing this in my school, and so he ran for school board as well. It turned out that on election day, he got busy on the farm, didn't get the vote that day, and I don't think he lost the election by one vote. It wasn't that. What happened was, in that election, not a single person voted. Had he voted for himself, he would be on the school board <laughs> for himself. See, it's a local focus, and we've got to get back to the local focus. So why get involved in local politics at all? Well, let me give you a reason why. If I take you to Benjamin Rush, we talked about him earlier. He is known as the father of public schools under the Constitution, one of the greatest educators in history. Started five universities, three of them still go today. Started the first medical uh, training for black Americans. Did the first academic education for women. First professor of chemistry in the United States. Did the first psychiatry textbook. Just unbelievable what he did. And so as father of public schools under the Constitution, this is a piece that he wrote in 1790 about the brand new schools in America because we'd have been 13 nations, now we're one nation. He said the, the purpose of public schools is threefold. He said purpose of public schools, number one, is to teach students to love and serve God. He said the purpose of public schools, number two, is to teach students to love and serve their country. And the purpose of public schools, number three, is to teach students to love and serve their family. Now please notice the sequence there. Because a lot of Christians raise eyebrows and say, no, wait a minute, I'm not sure country should go over family. I think it should be God, family, country. He said, no, it should be God, country, family. Why did he say that? Because he pointed out if you ever lose control of your country, it will become the great enemy of your family. And that's exactly what we're seeing with schools now. What's going on in the schools, this is the great attack on our faith and our morality and our belief as parents and et cetera. And so that's why school boards are such a focus right now. I, I've been involved in presidential races from dog catcher up through president of the United States. And right now we're engaged in one state where we have 170 school board candidates in one state that we're working with. I have never had that many school board candidates in 30 years. Something's going on at the local level where people are standing up and saying, no, not in our school you won't, not in our community you won't, not in our city you won't. Now, but it's really hard to vote good people in office if you don't have good people on the ballot. So how do you get good people on the ballot? My Bible tells us. There's a great parable in Judges 9, verses 8 through 15. It's called the parable of the trees of the field. And all the trees got together and said, we need civil government. So it said, one day the trees went out to anoint a king over them. They went, first of all, to the olive tree and said, the olive tree, 
hey, be our leader. Come reign over us. And Olive Tree said, no, nah, not me. Should I leave my fatness wherewith by me the honor with God and man and go be promoted with the trees? I'm not going to get involved in, in that stuff. And so they said, well, if the olive tree won't do it, maybe the fig tree will. So they went to the fig tree and said, hey, you're a good tree. Will you come and be, reign over us? And the fig tree said, no, not me. I'm not going to do that. Should I leave my sweetness and my good fruit and go be promoted over the trees? They said, well, if the olive won't do it and the fig won't do it, maybe we'll get the vine to do it. So they went to the vine and said, come be our ruler. And the vine said, no, nope, not going to do that. The vine said, should I leave my wine? But cheers both God and man. Go up your motor of the trees. So notice what's happened. They've gone to all the good trees, and all the good trees have reasons why they can't do it. Man, I can't get involved in that. i got too much going on. got too much of family, too much of business, whatever. So what's the sequence that's happened next? The scripture says that next, they said to the bramble. Oh, so now they're not with the good trees anymore. They're going to the bramble and said to the bramble, come be our ruler. And wouldn't you know it, the bramble is willing to be the ruler. Bramble said, well, if you want me to be your ruler, anoint me king, then come and put your trust in my shadow. And I'll just ask you how, real frankly, how much fun is it to sit in the shadow of a thorn bush? <laughs> Probably not fun. I would argue that we have way too many thorn bushes, way too many brambles that are ruling today. It's not the good trees that are ruling. It's the brambles that are ruling. How come the good trees aren't ruling? Because they've got too much other stuff to do. There's too much good stuff going, too much of the family, too much of business, too much with church. And so as a result, you end up getting the brambles. Now, how do you avoid brambles as rulers? Again, we go back to the scriptures. A great passage is in Exodus 18.21. In this passage, Jethro has come to Moses. Moses, by himself, is trying to rule the entire nation of three million people. And he's hearing every dispute, every case. He is everything. And Jethro said, you're nuts. This is crazy. And he gave him advice. The advice is, says, provide of all the people, able men, such as fear God, men of truth, hating covetousness, place such over them to be rulers of thousands, rulers of hundreds, rulers of fifties, and rulers of tens. You need rulers at the local, county, state, and federal level. And the people you want in office are able men, such as fear God, men of truth, who hate covetousness. Now, Moses said, when he spoke that to me, I took that as a word from God. And so you'll find Moses retell the story in Deuteronomy 1 and the Deuteronomy 16. He said, based on what I felt God said through Jethro, I went out among you and I recruited good people from among you that were able men, such as fear God, men of truth. He said, I recruited that. I brought them to you, he said, and then you selected from among the ones that I presented to you. So they had elections, but somebody did some recruiting before they got there. And that's the important part is the recruiting part because the good trees always want to say, no, you have to go lean on them and get them involved. So who does the providing? Well, it's interesting. In this case, it was Moses. It was a spiritual leader who went out and said, hey, you got the right characteristics. You need to be over here in office at leader of 10, 50, 100, 1,000. When you recall that when, when Saul was anointed, it was God who spoke to Samuel, the prophet, and said, he's the dude. Go, go pick him because he's the one I'm going to use. You had the same thing with David. You remember Samuel said, I thought it was going to be Jonadab because he looks like a fighter. This kid's got freckles on his face. He doesn't look like nothing. And yet he heard God say, this is the guy. And so it was people with spiritual discernment that went to others that had the right character, the right capabilities, and said, you're the guy. You, you need to run. And so it's a recruiting that's so important because one of the axioms that, that goes in politics that I can point out, oops, one of the axioms in politics is you want to elect people you don't have to lobby. And the only way you can elect people you don't have to lobby is you recruit people you don't have to lobby. 
I've recruited a lot of people for office from federal down through local level, and I have yet to make one single phone call to any of the dozens I've recruited and tell them how to vote on any issue because I put them in there because of what they believe. If I have to call somebody and tell them, hey, marriage is between a man and a woman, I've already lost the battle. I should have had somebody in office who knew marriage is between a man and a woman. So that's where you recruit right to get that. So let me close out with this final statement. Charles Finney who was uh, in the Second Great Awakening, is estimated that he led 100,000 people to Christ just in one year. Charles Fiddy, in that, in that period of time, wrote a book on how to have revivals. And he believed that revival was a science, that you could do things to create a revival. You don't just wait for God to show up. Remember Second Chronicles 7, 14, if my people will do this, then I will heal the land. He said, that's what revival. If you want revival, you got to do this. And so he found all the verses that were the if-then verses to show what you've got to do if God's going to respond. And this is what he said. He said, the church must take right ground in regard to politics. Politics are part of a religion to countries. This and Christians must do their duty to the country as part of their duty to God. He said, God will bless or curse this nation according to the course that Christians take in politics. Now, I'm going to point out, this was revival lecture number 15, which is called Hindrances to Revival. If you don't want a revival, don't get involved in politics. But if you want a revival, a hindrance to revival is not getting involved. You have to get involved in local stuff to, to make a difference. So this is the stuff I wanted to leave with you. If this is new to you, um, biblical worldview stuff, and I'm going to blow through some stuff real quick here, but worldview is, is hard work. It takes a lot of effort to come up with a biblical worldview. You're going to have to put that effort in because we don't live in a culture that is very biblical anymore. So if this is new to you, you might want to see. We've got some books like The American Story, The Founder's Bible, other things that will be at the back. Thank you guys for letting me share with you. Rob, back to you, Bill. That was awesome. Thank you, David. All right, I, I got to do this really quick and get you out of here because people are lined up to get in and yeah, they'll forgive me. Third service is awesome. They always put up with you guys. Um, <laughs> I'm kidding. So uh, be in prayer. Uh, this, this, is, this is our crucible. This is where we're called to stand. We're awakening to that. I want to read this to you. Uh, Seth Gruber, who is our pro-life advocate, uh, speaks all over the country. He was asked to go to Ukiah to speak at a crisis pregnancy center at a church, and they were requiring him to wear a mask or all the folks who attend to wear a mask. He didn't want to go. I said, why don't you go and say this? So I wrote him the speech. Tonight I have the privilege to speak on behalf of the unborn. I'm in a room with men and women who seek to defend and protect the lives of the unborn. I see you're all in compliance with the state's mandate and you are all wearing masks. I speak to you unmasked as you wouldn't be able to hear me otherwise. The state that has decreed this mandate is the same state that sells the body parts of the preborn and flushes the remains of these children into the sewers of our state. Romans 13 tells us that God appoints all positions of authority and that we are to submit to this authority, but it also says that these authorities are appointed for our good. And when they cease to do good, they cease to be the authority. Now, where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. In Leviticus 25.10, which is inscribed upon our liberty bell at Independence Hall, proclaims, uh, proclaim liberty throughout all the land and to all its inhabitants. I know that the organizers of this event are good people, and they want to do the right thing. Still, however, I must confess that to contend with the evil of this state and its tyranny of death invoked upon an unborn generation and whose medical procedures rival that and in some cases exceed that of Nazi Germany is why I've come tonight. Tyranny is achieved by incremental submission, by good people submitting to systematic control. 
It is true that I cannot be heard if I were wearing a mask, but candidly, I would not be here tonight if I were directed to wear a mask. If we are to secure the freedom from tyranny of death for these children, we must ourselves stand against this, the tyranny of this government's attempt to muzzle and silence us. Uh, I lost my... Oh, there it is. I do not seek to insult any of you, but I am called to awaken you, even if that means I will never be invited back. Why would this state lift its grip on the destruction of our children when it freely muzzles the voices of their defenders? If I am to be removed for not wearing a mask, so be it. I will go peacefully. But if we are to be victorious on behalf of these children, the battle begins with us. I invoke the words of the Apostle Paul from Galatians 5.1. Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty for which Christ has set you free, and do not be entangled any longer to the yoke of bondage. I say that because all of you this morning and this afternoon have come and you've been equipped and everyone must stand their ground. Now, many of us have made mistakes and we feel as though we've compromised. Well, forget what's behind, strive for what is ahead. Today, we are more than conquerors in Christ Jesus. Stand, do not cave, do not falter. God will strengthen you and we will win this. Let's stand and I'll pray for you. Lord, I thank you for this precious congregation and for these folks who are here to receive from you that which is necessary to be equipped to contend for freedom. And Lord, liberty is your idea, not man's. And we are already free. We just need to start acting that way. Our heart is free, now follow it. And so Lord, with that declaration that we are to proclaim liberty throughout the, all the land and to all its inhabitants, today we have received this, we have encouragement, and we leave this place prepared to honor you in every way, shape, and form. Not fade, not capitulate, not yield to any of this tyranny any longer. Lord, strengthen these folks. Bless them. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We, we've all failed in some capacity. But we forget what's behind and we strive for what is ahead. And God is going to be enough for you. Trust him. And so, Lord, we thank you for your provision. And we thank you for your blessing. And we do this for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you guys. I cleared out. I got to get them in. Work it.